Reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of the Lord. So we had a little bit of a different start to our Advent season this year with me being away for a couple of weeks and both of the pastors that provided pulpit supply while I was gone asked specifically, do I have to do an Advent sermon or what? And I said, that is totally up to you. Preach as the Lord leads you to preach. And I understand that's what they have done and heard that uh, that was a blessing. So I'm glad that they were able to come. But according to the Cambridge Dictionary, Advent, this season of the church year in which we find ourselves right now, means the fact of an event happening, an invention being made, or a person arriving. So we can talk about the advent of a person who has come from somewhere else and is now present with us. We could talk about the advent of the steam engine or the advent of the electric car. And in every case, when we use that term advent like that, What we're doing is talking about something that is already here, something that has already happened. We are talking about the arrival of an important person or thing, which, by the way, is how the Compact Oxford Dictionary defines the word. I say this because we have this sense of Advent as preparation. We seem to think of the Sundays of Advent as kind of a a warm-up, to Christmas, kind of like those pre-season games that major teams play in minor markets, I I suppose. They're interesting if you are a huge fan, or if you are one of those people who's just gone so long without seeing a hockey or a basketball or a football game that you would just take anything to get back into it. But in the end, those pre-season games, those preparatory games that lead up to the real thing, they just don't mean that much. And in a similar way, Advent is seen by many as a time to prepare for the coming of an important person or thing, which coming, by the way, we will finally get around to celebrating on December 25th. Some people have candlelighting services, as we do. Most are breaking out the Christmas music. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus inevitably makes an appearance during these four Sundays of Advent. I think we already had it here a couple of weeks ago. At home, people are decorating, putting up the tree, hanging the lights outside. Children are trying their best now, not to get too far ahead on those calendars where you break open a door each day and there's a little treat or a piece of chocolate behind it. I I think we tried that one year with our kids and we should have been celebrating Christmas on December 2nd based on all the candy that was missing from the calendar, but we have this sense of something coming, something that we are waiting for. 
And that leaves us feeling like maybe all we're really doing during this season is preparing for this event that we will celebrate, the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. See, Christmas, or as some prefer, Jesus' birthday, that's okay, it really was a big deal. We saw this in our scripture reading a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And that would be unusual enough to make this event, which we remember and celebrate at Christmas time, a really huge thing. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary had asked, how shall this be, seeing that I have not known a man? And that makes this event very, very unusual. It just doesn't happen every day. It's only ever happened once, as a matter of fact. But the angel went on, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then that divinely inspired commentary on these events provided by Matthew in verses 22 and 23, all this, the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary the Virgin, um, and at Bethlehem, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, God with us. This truly is a a big thing, a big deal, and we might be tempted to think that it doesn't get any bigger than this. And that would be true. But we can't let the idea of God with us get stuck in Bethlehem. We can't start thinking as if God was not with his people before Jesus came to earth and was born of the virgin. That's just simply not true. He says over and over again to his saints in the Old Testament, I will be with you. So God had been with his people. And we can't make the false assumption either that Jesus was God with us during the 33 or 34 years or so that he lived here on earth, and then he went back to heaven, and we were left without the presence of God in some significant sense. We can't let Christmas We can't let Jesus' birthday become sort of the apex celebration of the Christian year. And I know we we have Easter and we have Christmas and there are a few other days that kind of get scattered in there. But we especially don't want to let Jesus' birthday occupy the most important place. When I was a child, I grew up in the United States. And I remember we used to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday, 12, February 12th, 1809, at Sinking Spring Farm. Sounds like a likely place for a president to come from, right? In Hodgenville, Kentucky, just in case you were wondering. But looking back, it always seemed odd. We, we celebrated his birthday. We, we had things that went on at school on the day that Abraham Lincoln was born. But there were so many other things that happened during his life which were of far greater significance than just the fact that he was born. 
As president of the United States, he led that nation through a war that demonstrated just how not united those states really were, and perhaps are still. And somewhere about the middle of that war, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation and effectively ended slavery in North America. Now, of course, if he hadn't been born, he would not have been able to do those things. But the things themselves are more significant than simply the fact of his birth. That is likely true for every notable figure in history. It is especially true for Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even that inevitable text that we read a few moments ago from the Gospel according to Matthew, it touches on his birth, but it looks far beyond his birth, especially in verse 21 where the angel said, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And clearly that saving of his people from their sins is not something that was ever going to be accomplished by a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. It should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. As much as we kind of like to sing about it, and evidently away in a manger is like the number one favorite Christmas song of all time, but as much as we like to sing about it, the little Lord Jesus wasn't born so that he could lay down his sweet head in a manger. The Lord Jesus Christ was born so that he could lay down his life for his people and save them, so that he could save us from our sin by shedding his blood. And that last part, the part that leads us well beyond Bethlehem and all the way to the cross. The shedding of his blood in payment for our sins is a vital point. And granted, this is a little excursus here, but I'm going to do this more and more often because more and more often these days we are running into people, even some so-called Christian preachers, who are denying this truth. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus just came to show us what humility looks like, he who had been God and shared the glory of God before the world began, came and was born as a poverty-stricken baby, laid in a manger, isn't that nice? What a great example. Well, we are still in our sin. And we may as well not be here this morning. Those who deny that Christ shed his own blood to pay the penalty for the sin of his people are denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, if there's any question whatsoever what we believe in the Christian Reformed Church, just look to Lord's Day 1 in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life? and in death, that I with body and soul in life and death am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. Why do I use that version? I said this a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, I guess. I'll say it one more time at least. 
I was having a conversation with a businessman the other day, and we were talking about how it's possible to pay for something without really satisfying for something. And so when they decided to rewrite the Heidelberg Catechism and to drop that concept of satisfaction and just say, he has fully paid for all my sins, we lost something. Because Jesus did fully pay for all our sins, but he also satisfied for our sins. God no longer looks and says, well, I'd really like to slam you guys with some judgment, but I'm not going to because Jesus paid the bill. He now looks at us as if we had never sinned or been sinners as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. We sing it. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There's a beautiful truth here that we need to hang on to. So what I'm trying to get across this morning is that it's not enough to say that Jesus is the reason for the season. I know it's a cliche, but you still see it around. I have a coffee mug with that on it. Now, seeing Jesus is the reason for this season makes far more sense than a lot of other things that people make a fuss over at this time of year. You know, a jolly old elf and 12 tiny reindeer, things like that. But Jesus' birthday in itself is not adequate reason to celebrate. Rather, the reason for the season is found in his name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Let me dig into that just a little bit this morning. In his commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, Calvin wrote of that name, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in Hebrew, The name contains a promise of salvation and points out the object for which Christ was sent by the Father into the world. Let us remember that not by the will of men, but by the command of God was this name given to him by the angel that our faith may have its foundation not in earth, but in heaven. God sent him, and he said his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save. It's a declarative statement. It's not a hope. It's not some, well, it it should be nice if Jesus might somehow save some people. No, he will save his people. Calvin wrote this way because saying you shall call his name Jesus is kind of like saying you shall call his name Savior for he will save. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name that we translate Joshua. Joshua is a compound word, which means Yahweh saves. As another commentator points out, there were two of that name under the Old Testament who were both illustrious types of Christ. Joshua, who was Israel's captain at their first settlement in Canaan, and Joshua, who was their high priest at their second settlement after the captivity. We all know about the first one, not as much about the second one. But Christ is our Joshua. He is both the captain of our salvation and the high priest of our profession, and in both, our Savior. A Joshua who comes in the stead of Moses and does for us that which the law could not do. Joshua had originally been called Hosea, 
But Moses prefixed the first syllable of the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, and he made it Jehoshua to intimate that the Messiah who was to bear that name should be able to save to the uttermost. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. More on that in a couple of weeks. Indeed, the purpose for which Christ came into the world, the purpose for which God sent his only son into this world is just summed up in the name that was given by the angel. You shall call his name Jesus, you shall call him Savior, for he will save his people. But I want you to notice also what he came to save us from. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, this is important. It's important because we don't like to talk about it. So many articles and sermons and things today will talk about our brokenness and our weakness and our illness and all of these things, but we don't like to talk about our sin. There are so many people in the world today who are teaching a very different gospel which is not a gospel at all. Liberation theology, which is kind of a 30 or 40 year old term, maybe older than that, for what you are hearing as critical race theory these days. Liberation theology teaches that Jesus came to save us from systemic oppression in all of its various forms. The prosperity gospel, which by the way is not the gospel, teaches that Jesus came to free us from poverty and sickness, moralistic therapeutic deism, kind of an all-encompassing tag that has summarized so much of what passes for evangelicalism today, teaches that Jesus came mostly to free us from bad feelings and negativity. He just wants us to enjoy life. In a general way, the theme that draws all of these together, and there are a lot more, is the idea that Jesus came to free us from things that are outside of ourselves. He came to free us from things that are imposed on us, things that are not our fault. But the angel did not say, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from oppression or poverty or sickness or sorrow or brokenness or COVID-19 or wars or floods or fires or tornadoes or even from physical death. In the end, Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, will do all of those things. He will. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But these things, having their source outside of ourselves, they're just symptoms of our fallen, sinful world. And Jesus came not just to help us, give us a little boost to fix the symptoms. Jesus came to cure the disease that is at the root of every last one of them. He will save his people from their sins. And that was something that they were looking forward to when the angel spoke those words to Joseph. 
But in fact, his coming into the world, having happened over 2,000 years ago, Jesus did save, he is saving, and he will continue to save his people from their sins until the whole company of his elect have been gathered into the glory of his kingdom. And it is all of grace. It is all the free gift of our sovereign God. As we read in the Gospel of John, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is all of grace. The Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards, I think, said it best. He said that you, we, contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And so God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. He sent his son into the world and he said, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what's in a name? Well, when it comes to the name of Jesus, absolutely everything. And I want to end here this morning before we turn to the table of the Lord, Lord's Day 11, question and answer 29 in the Heidelberg Catechism. I'd ask you to join me on the answer. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because he delivers us from all our sins and saves us. And because no salvation is to be sought or found in any other. And that's the whole takeaway today. If you understand that, if you believe that, then you are a child of God. Your sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. God has been satisfied through the death and the blood of his son Jesus Christ, and he will no longer hold those sins against you. If you understand that and believe that, well, that's what this season, Advent and Christmas, is really about. As the angel said, she, the Virgin Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that you would impress on us the real meaning of your son's coming into the world, that he came to save us from our sin. Help us not to trust in ourselves or in anything from this world or anything else at all, for there is no salvation anywhere else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, keep us looking to him and to him alone for all that we need for life and godliness. We pray in that precious 
and holy name of Jesus. Amen.